You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Match Girls. In the factories of America during the 19th century, girls hired to bake matches would dip the match ends into a chemical vat, then lick the tips to make them stiff. Phosphorus vapor filled the air, a poison about which no one warned them, so when their teeth fell out and their jaws rotted like bad fruit, it was too late. It was not the first time such things happened. Bent at their workstations, women in the 18th century cured ladies' hats with mercury. Their legacy, blushing, aching limbs, a plague of rashes, parchment-thin pages of sloughed skin, curled and cracked, minds deranged. They could not know they shared a fate with the emperor Qin Shi Huang, who, seeking eternal life, swallowed pills laced with mercury. He built the Great Wall and unified China, then outlawed all religions not sanctioned by the state, burned treatises on history, politics, and art. Scholars who dared possess such things, he buried alive. His body lies in a vast mausoleum, guarded by a terracotta army. Of the factory girls, mouths opening below earth, their bodies burning like forbidden books, we know almost nothing. The voice you heard at the top of the show belonged to the poet Elise Kusnets and was recorded when she visited the Scottish Poetry Library in 2014. That same year, her collection Small Hours was published. Elise was, in fact, quite the fan of Scotland and Scottish poetry, as you'll hear more about during this podcast. She'd lived and studied in Scotland and had championed Scottish poetry in reviews and essays published in the US and UK. My former colleague Jennifer Williams, also known as the poet J.L. Williams, conducted that podcast interview, which can still be heard on our website. I met Elise at that year's Stanza Poetry Festival in St Andrews, where she was reading, and although the meeting was brief, she impressed me with her energy and intelligence. When we heard two years later, Elise had died at the age of 50, we were saddened and surprised, as one so often finds oneself thinking these days, it wasn't fair. Three years later, admirers of her poetry have, however, some consolation in the form of a new collection of poems written while she was undergoing treatment for cancer. The book is Angel Bones, and it's published in the UK by Alice James Books in May. The book has been overseen into publication by Elise's husband, Brian Turner, himself a poet, editor and memoirist. He's the author of the collections Hear Bullet and Phantom Noise, and the memoir, My Life as a Foreign Country. At the start of this week, I spoke to Brian about Elise and Angel Bones via Skype, as he's living in Florida, and the podcast budget doesn't stretch to flights, alas. Consequently, there are one or two moments at the start of the interview where there's the odd bumping noise, which I'm guessing is some form of internet interference. There isn't a lot of it, and you might not even notice, but I thought I'd say... In a moment you can hear our interview, but first, Brian is a poem taken from Angel Bones. The Mellified Man For months the Chosen One ate only honey, until his tears and sweat became pure honey, his grave a beehive, a golden queen enthroned upon his tongue. 
After a century, the man's name forgotten, his flesh, blood, and bones given to sweetness, his combed hands sealed with amber. Priests would split the aureate casket, then break off small pieces of him to feed the sick, who'd miraculously recover. It was said if you held a morsel up to your ear, you could hear the faint hum of a god. How did you and Elise meet? Was it through writing? We met while I was, uh, Elise was teaching and living here in Orlando, Florida, and uh, for Valencia College. And I went, um, I came to Florida as a, as a writer. I was invited to the college uh, by the committee. She didn't actually know my work or know me, but she would often sit in on the workshops uh, that poets and writers would give when they would come through town. And so I was giving one of those workshops and we were right in the middle of uh, beginning an exercise. It was a group exercise. And she had shown up just maybe five minutes um, into the class. So so I didn't see her initially when she first came in. I, I just I noticed she'd come in, but I was busy at the chalkboard. So I asked another student if they could help her sort of catch up uh, with what we were doing. And um, what we, we were writing a, a group poem and I had written the first line up on the on the board, which was something to the, it was about a, a small house in a, in a bucolic setting. It was evening, maybe like in the, uh, with fire smoke coming out of the chimney. And there was this, a, a small stream that, and I remember the word was creeps over the rocks. And the word creeps just seemed out of register. Just, it's just the wrong word. It just hurt my ears, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and I, I, I turned to the class and I, and I said, well, or I was still facing the board, but I sort of turned halfway to the class and said, is there, and I circled the word, and I said, is there another word we might use here? And she said, um, the water pearls over the rocks. And I just remember being my, my we met first with our ears, or through language, I should say. Mm. And I was, mm. I was immediately just uh, intrigued and, and, and uh, kind of caught, in a sense. And I'm interested to know what it's like to be in a relationship with someone who is also a writer. I imagine it's helpful to have a partner who can offer feedback on your poetry, for example. So how does it work practically? I, I love this question because, um, you know, it was one of the great uh, gifts of, of our relationship. Our, our relationship wasn't predicated, you know, wholly on writing and being writers together, even though even the first example when we first met was through language and writing right there inside a poem, in fact, you know. The writing process for us, we were both sort of addicted to our work and we, we loved what we, we, we were doing. So that house, if you can imagine, it's kind of a small house in Orlando and um, I'm in my office right now, which is a third bedroom in the house. She would often work in our main bedroom or in the uh, living room, which is just on the other side of the, w the wall of this office. And there's a door there that would open and I could, uh, I always leave it open. And so she would always be, we would just be on the other side of this one wall. And so we would just call out to each other while we're writing. I wouldn't often be in the same room with her because she liked to have other media going on at the same time. It somehow helped her to sort of think with, with things going on. But me, I need sort of quiet and, and few things, you know, moving around kind of thing. So she'd have the TV on in the background, but on silent, for example, the cats running around her and stuff. And, and she would write these amazing poems. And then I, I would walk around in this room just sort of thinking with a sentence myself. And what we'd do is call out to each other. And then, and then when we would have a draft of something, uh, I'd show it to her. And she, she would always use a purple pen. And she would mark up my 
my my writing with a purple pen not not once i tried but never in our entire relationship did she ever read through an entire thing just being sort of swept up in it without getting snagged on some you know errant phrase or or sentence that i'd um stumbled through and then she would circle it and try to offer a suggestion it was, kind of, it was something i'd always hoped to write a clean piece of writing that didn't need the purple pen but um, she just had a keen, keen eye and uh, and a sharp mind. I guess in a sense, um, whenever I would give her something, I would immediately become defensive and, and, <laughs> and sort of think, no, no, no. And then I would go back and sit with it for a while. And then usually I'd say about 90, probably about 90% of the material I would end up uh, incorporating into the drafts. And, and, and then the opposite direction I think it was less so. I think I think I had a it's still a pretty good rate, but probably I'd say seventy five, eighty percent rate, you know, of things that would be incorporated in the drafts on on her side. Looking at Angel Bones, this second book, part of what I had to do was go back and look at her early drafts and her own comments on her on her her first book to see how she would revise work, you know, internally and try to get a sense because I realized that my suggestions for her second book, which were never able to be sort of done and incorporated as they normally would have been, I had to figure out on my own, like, where's my 10% failure rate? You know, where am I wrong? And that it's really hard to, to see very clearly, but I, I tried my best. I wanted to ask about Lisa's Scottish connections. Her poem, Wild Poppies, uh, which is in the new collection, it mentions Rosalind Wood and Catching This Life and Others uh, mentions Edinburgh. And I know she received her PhD in contemporary feminist and postcolonial British literature from the University of Edinburgh. And she's also published numerous reviews and essays on contemporary American and Scottish poetry, both in the United States and Great Britain. Where did this connection with, with Scotland come from? You know, I'm. this is something that was never clearly articulated. It was, um, it was something that... I just learned in bits and fragments over the years. Uh, but I think maybe if I step back for a second, there's one thing I should say is that not only would she talk about some of the places you just mentioned and these things, but I sense when she was talking, there was sort of a deep reservoir of connection to, to Scotland, you know, and Edinburgh. And it felt like somehow Edinburgh had rooted itself inside of her, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I do remember she talked several times about how she felt, um, and it doesn't feel like this even in America in some places, you know, she was born and raised here, but she lived in different regions, you know, she was born and raised in New York, on, on Long Island and parts of New York, and was there in her early childhood, and then moved to New Mexico, out into the desert, Albuquerque, which was like a, a you know, foreign planet at that point in her life to her, and they were just such disparate, such a difference in the two places, and then uh, from there, she went to Syracuse to get her M.A. and study poetry with uh, poets there. She'd been to Oxford for a short period, I believe, and she'd also uh, been to Paris and taught at the American School, I think, for a short time. And so she'd, she'd been to Europe a bit, but then when she went to Scotland, I think what she found was that the way she would say this is that she felt that you could be from another place, but that if you if you lived there and truly tried to take up the spirit of the place and be and be a part of Scotland, that Scotland was a place that would welcome and, and absorb an outsider as one of their own, even 
recognizing the difference, but still you could be a Scottish. I'm not sure if this is true, but the way she said it was that you could be a Scottish poet, even if you were from outside. Whereas if you were Scottish poets come to America, you'd almost always remain a Scottish poet in America. And I, I think yeah. she, you know, I think she was also drawn to the language because the, the, the sheer, um, the diction even is just, it's such a wider palette. You know, there's just so many more words for things. And she was, as a maker, as someone who's like gives names to things, uh, she, she was fascinated and I think intrigued and just loved the, the language that was in, in partly her own English, but also, you know, there's just so much more available and so much more, uh, it's, it was richer to her. Moving on to her last collection, Angel Bones, Elise's statement um, at the start of that book, in it, she writes about poetry's ability to help us grieve for ourselves and for each other and to bear witness to suffering. What's your take on that idea? You know, what I just mentioned of this uh, af affection she had for the language that she encountered in Scotland and the, the people that she met there, it's similar. It's this idea of being able to name something and and language, it was so crucial to her. It was to put into words what's happening, the, the roiling sort of trouble that's happened inside the body and what she was experiencing. Without that, and just to paraphrase her, you know, we're, we're reduced to kind of a, a howl of, of anguish. I think she would lean on poetry because there was no other way to say the thing. And her, her poetry often had a kind of layered sensibility to it. Uh, I don't want to reduce it in some ways, but it, it seems to me there are often layers of you see this maybe even more in her first book, but there'd be like a historical part portion, almost like there's these overlays and there's like the historical things that are happening in a poem. There's also sort of just a pure lyric element. And then uh, with, with flourishes in the language and, and just turns of phrase that are just lovely. And then, and then there were also, there was also a, a strong feminist part of the poem or, or sort of a, a dialogue taking place inside it. And, those sort of intermesh with each other and and intertwine and and uh, I, I always find it fascinating how she was able to sort of thread that all together, you know, uh, in into one mm. poem. In in this in Angel Bones, it seems like some of that was stripped away a lot, quite a bit, and it's much more lyrical and um, the voice seems um, less layered and more like there's a kind of purity of voice somehow, I suppose. One area she takes a reader like myself inside is chemotherapy, which, you know, I have have a layperson's knowledge of, never having experienced. As a poet, uh, Elise, with her poetry about chemotherapy, takes you, I think, really inside the process and experience. It, and me too. You know, I was there during the chemotherapy, but I, I wasn't taking the chemotherapy. It's the same for me. And, and so she... You know, with this book, in part, she, she's able to, like, give us a, a lens into the experience. So it's, it's valuable because, you know, cancer, for example, is a, a kind of modern-day plague that quietly happens all through our lives and throughout the I never noticed as many cancer patients until I became part of the world of cancer. And then, then it, now, as I drive through the streets or I walk through the city, I notice people that I didn't, you know, I recognize the cancer patients among us more. And there's so many of them that I didn't realize how many there were before walking among us and, and try, you know, living their lives. And, um, but 
she's inside of it and and these poems give us that lens we'll pause the conversation there to hear another poem by elise taken from angel bones and read by brian how to build a stradivarius the masters wrote to yield the best result harvest after a cold winter the wood condensed by ice and storms in whose gales the highest notes are born from summits of balkan maple red spruce gathered in a valley off the italian dolomites they carved each instrument's alluvial curves then came the varnish one coat of painter's oil another of plain resin only the thinnest of layers to obtain that satin chatoyancy that liminal reflet it said stradivari plain to the trees first notice the straight pines like strings on a vast divine violin absorbing heaven's vibrations the truth could be found in the song itself how it was impossible to tell where the wood ceased and the song began notes pure as a mathematical equation transposing mountain valley mountain again have you found your own attitude to poetry has been changed by the experience of observing your partner writing poetry in her last days? Yeah, I think it reinforced in some ways um, something I, I, you know, a few decades back, I, I would have agreed with the idea that, you know, poetry is often best written in contemplation and in, in tranquility, the old the old phrase. But I, I no longer believe that. I, I think there are just different different types of poetry come out of these things. So, so my first experience with this was when I myself was in combat and I wrote a, a book of poems in my notebooks. And, and so those poems have a kind of rough quality to them. They could have been more polished and I, I, I surely could have spent more time when I came home editing them and polishing them so that they, but I, I like the, the reportive sort of rough quality of them. It, it makes me feel that moment they're poems of that time you know and so so I had already had that experience and and personally and now more importantly into your question um, it really instilled in me this idea that poetry can be written inside of an experience sometimes you know there are these people that are capable of doing it and and she did it she did it with a kind of a kind of a fever because she knew some of it was in the last few weeks of her life you know as 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 language was diminishing for her. And she was, you know, she was really struggling even with that. You know, I could see it on her face and she, she would talk to me about how, how upsetting it was to her knowing that she was, her language was diminishing and dwindling. One of the elements of the book that occurs is a contrast between the knowledge of death inching closer and the beauty of the natural world that Elise finds herself writing in and on. Did you find an element of consolation in the natural world as well as inspiration? Yeah, I, I, I believe so. She, um, you, you'll see that there's so many birds, for example, that show up in the, in the, in the book and, and right outside the kitchen window, which is oftentimes where she would stand as she was getting a glass of water and taking some of her pills, for example. Or she would just stand there just to look outside, and and there's a bird, couple of bird feeders that we'd put in the backyard right outside the window, and so there's a, a wide variety of birds that would come to there to that the feeder and and into those branches, and there's something stripped down and elemental about at least in in our perception when we look at 
um, wildlife sometimes there's uh, it's unencumbered by um, uh, kind of politics and rhetoric and things like that there's just kind of purity of being and and uh, and, there'd be, and and just a beauty and a kind of grace to the to the to birds for example as they're at the feeder uh, and they can be real you know assholes to each other too <laughs> fighting over the food and all that I don't want to sound like it's just um, but uh, I, I I think she took a, a lot of solace in in just viewing them and being with them in that moment um, mm. and we had a very large we have a very large window in the bedroom so even when she was in bed she could just look to her side and see those same birds out another window um, so much of her day was spent with them uh, so just sort of off to the side and with her yeah mm. Yeah, I hope it doesn't, you know, I hope you don't mind me going being too long with it. I suppose you can just cut down to whatever might be interesting. But I think there there is a mystical sort of spiritual aspect to it, too. And I think sometimes, I, I'm not sure if she ever stated it overtly uh, the way I am now, but I think she saw some of them, in a sense, as kind of like um, messengers or guides as well. I was very struck by her poem, Essay on Extinction, Lake Adair, which... The power of it, I think, comes from the way in which she finds a rhyme in her, her dying and what we're doing to the natural world. Yeah, yeah. She was she was passionate about um, what, what grandchildren, people who are being born right now and those who are just arriving into adulthood, this sort of, I can see it on their faces, how, how uh, upset and how disappointed, they, and disappointed at like a, like a root core human level, like in such a way that you're almost made mute by it. That's what I see in the generation coming up, um, looking at generations before and how we've, how awful we've been with the world as a, as a whole. Um, and, and she was just, uh, and she knew that it, in part that that was what led to killing her. And so that she had an early death um, at 50. You know, she was in Albuquerque, but on the other side of the mountain, there was an Air Force base and, and the, thinking is is that there was some there were a lot of uh, pretty horrible chemicals that went into the the mountain on one side but that entered the aquifer of water that f that fed the other side of the mountain where where Albuquerque is her brother has uh, some issues I'm not sure how much I can share on that but he has he mm. issues that he's dealing with the next door neighbor died her mother died of cancer in 2004 I believe and uh, so it's I wonder if you canvass those neighborhoods, um, what the cancer rate would look like in, in that part of Albuquerque, for example. If you if you read our poem Harbinger, um, Elisa's, you know, I think it's fair to say, uncompromising in her diagnosis of where things have gone wrong in America. She writes, neo-fascist politicians who lead a nation of people unable to think critically. A few 40 years systemic dismantling of the education system by the rich. Yeah, yeah, neo fascist politician. Yeah, she <laughs> she didn't lay back on that poem, you know. <laughs> and it's one of the rare poems because usually she's sort of, you know, it's it's a little behind the scenes, and you can feel that kind of anger driving a poem, but it's just not overtly on the surface. And but she she was a very political person, and she was uh, uh, in conversation just very actively. She she. Both local and region, local, regional, and and national and international politics. So, you know, the whole spectrum. She was into it, and uh, 
Um, I love talking politics with her. So it was it was wonderful. I wanted to ask you, Brian, about the US today. What's your take on it as a citizen and as a writer? Man, I you know to to answer this question about um, my take on the U.S. today as a citizen as a writer is it you know I don't know if like here we have FCC rules and like a, a string of epithets starting with the F word and just getting more and more blue is what wants to come out of my mouth. <laughs> it's uh, you know we have there there are children in cages at the border you know and I live in a country that cages children and mm-hmm. so it's. Uh, and that's just one thing, and it's so normalized in a sense that that's not even being talked about today. That won't come up once in the news today, because there there's other things going on. It's just every single day, one after another, it's an exhausting, um, anxiety-ridden period. So much so that um, about a year ago, I went to Zimbabwe, and I was uh, sort of, for me, a little bit off the, my usual sort of social media grid. I wasn't, my phone wasn't on so much. I didn't use the internet. I was really in Zimbabwe, you know, and I wasn't sort of partially through the internet in America. And it, it was beautiful because um, not only did I really enjoy being in Zimbabwe and meeting people and seeing the country, but um, it was a period of time where I, I just didn't have access to the news the way I normally would. And it, and it felt like my body felt like I was cleansing myself of toxins. And I just felt so relaxed. And by the time I came back, it, it took a while for me, but I, you know, eventually I, I allowed the toxins back in and the usual anxiety just sort of hovers inside, not just me, but I, I could see in the people around me, regardless of what political spec, you know, part of the spectrum they're on, if they're, if they're hooked into social media and, and the news outlets, it seems like there's just this pervasive anxiety that's throughout the country. I, I don't know where it's headed. It just, uh, it's, it's really an awful time. Artists who lose loved ones often respond to that loss through their art. Do you plan to respond in that fashion at some point? Yeah, there's, um, I, last night I got back some of the first comments on a, on a manuscript I've, I've been working on. Uh, it's, uh, the title comes from a line in one of her poems. So the book's called The Wild Delight of Wild Things. And it's, uh, uh, it's a memoir, um, I suppose I suppose it would land on a shelf, the shelf of um, uh, grief memoirs, you know. But I'm trying. Mm. I'm trying to. Um, I'm trying to go back and and the notes that I was given from a friend are really helpful, because I, 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 I want it, I don't want it to be so much a grief memoir. I though it is that as one of my old teachers, um, Phil Levine, his he said, if you were if you're gonna try to express loss, then you have to. You have to give the reader uh, some something or someone to fall in love with, and then you take them away. So the you know the reader has to fall in love too, and 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 that's what I want is I want people to fall in love with Elise. I I was more selfish when she was alive, but now I'm trying to <laughs> be, you know, to share more. I believe you'd like to work on some projects you and Elise were working on together at the time of her death. Yeah, those and 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 some things that she wasn't aware of. So. Um, like for example, this is connected to her time in Scotland. It's actually comes from Scotland, and when she was there, so I didn't realize this because you know I've done a lot of music, and she's there's several music projects I've done over the years, and I finished one entire album, and she sings on that in some parts, uh, but it was a whole other kind of crazy project that was just a side thing that I was doing, and I haven't released it yet or tried to 
uh, complete some of the stuff that goes with it, but it's an album that goes along with a, a book of poems. So she sang on that and, for example, and other things. But she, I could never get her into the studio enough, and she would always talk about how her voice wasn't, wasn't her, you know, vocal cords weren't limber enough and they weren't where, where she had had them at one point, and so she didn't want to. But in my mind, you know, just in a practical sense, you know, she sang... Her voice was so beautiful. I thought, you've got to be kidding. Like, it's great. You know, please sing it. Especially considering what my voice sounds like. You know, I was like, <laughs> help me out here, you know. And uh, she was reticent to do it. And and I would often talk about my, the different bands I'd been in the years and my, you know, rock star dreams of, of yesteryear and all that. And what I never realized is it was here in the house lived somebody had gone so much further into music and had studied it um, and had a talent that uh, far surpassed my own. I came across uh, these uh, cassettes, and there's one cassette. They're all um, Scottish ballads, traditional ones. That some of them, I believe, are a few hundred years old, and they're all sung a cappella. And she, she sang them while she, she recorded that while she was there in Edinburgh. And she'd been in a, a group that was um, recording. I, I'm not sure if those songs were for that group or, or what. There's no context given to them. So what I'm trying to do is I'm taking those, and this spring, I'm going to take those, for example, and work with the local engineer who's a friend of mine and see if we can get them, you know, make them digital, then clean up the signal and, um, and make the uh, audio as, as, as sweet and clear to the original as possible. And then I'll see from there what we'll do, because part of me thinks I might put a sort of experimental soundtrack behind it, some just some tones and space and maybe go to Scotland, record some audio, some ambient sounds and put that in the background. Or or I go the whole other route, which is I research each song, I find the right instrument instrumentations and the inst and the musicians and we create the backing tracks that she was singing to. So so mm. that that's one project I plan to do. And that wraps up another episode of the Scottish Poetry Libraries podcast series. Before we go, some thank yous. Many thanks to Brian Turner for taking the time to speak to us about Elise's work. A reminder, Elise's collection is called Angel Bones. It's published by Alice James Books and comes out in the UK in May. Thanks also to my friend Will Campbell for writing, performing and producing the music you heard at the start of the show. And thank you to you for listening. Between podcasts, you can keep up with what the Poetry Library is doing via our social media. So we do Twitter at by Leaves We Live. We do Facebook. Um, I think our page is called SPL Scotland and that's the same for our Instagram account as well. And of course there's our website www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk. Before we go, I'm pleased to say Brian has recorded himself reading a poem of his own, which you'll hear in a moment, and that'll be followed by a track recorded by the Interplanetary Acoustic Team, a band featuring Brian on guitars, and synths and Elise on vocals. Until next time. Summertime. Barefoot, we walk through torpedo grass at noon, lightning flashing over the St. Jones River, the shoreline banded for miles in tannins' metallic gradations, bull alligators drifting in the far shallows, and not one word spoken, just this shivering under an old hickory, the rain fallen hard, Waves splashing against cypress knees. With the sound of honeybees caught in blossoms of tar flower, our mouths hum, 
our limbs envelop each other the way fox grape climbs, voicing its fruit among the air plants above. The arched soles of my feet press down into deadfall and leaf rot as we unbutton the afternoon by touch, by kiss, by the sliding heat of muscle and groove, that sweet friction of bodies which returns the gods to earth once more, frogs announcing their return in unison to witness how stubborn and beautiful the human frame is in defiance of the inevitable. If only for an afternoon on the St. John's River, clap of thunder in the distance. Love, I have spent a lifetime counting the thunder down. Let the gods express themselves in the ruin of water and stone, and let the dead stand among us, silent in their deep reserve. We will kiss until the pleated tips of the palmettos burn in copper and bronze. We will kiss until we are charged with a trembling voltage, until our bodies connect heaven and earth.
handicap and the output from the sensors were fed down directly onto my nervous system and directly into my brain. So, um, was there anything that happened that you totally didn't expect? Closer objects got, the, the more current uh, was fed in onto my nervous system, more current was fed to my brain. So I had a very, very good feeling when objects coming close to me when they were further away. And I, I with a blindfold on, I could move around and detect objects. I think when we're looking to Cyborg 3.0 with, with more to do with brain implants, it, that's, that's looking at thought communication. Thank you for downloading this Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook. <laughs>